Well, we continue this morning our study in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we come into chapter 16 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Let me read that for us. Now he, Jesus, was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is a hard parable for a number of reasons. One is that in this parable, Jesus commends a dishonest, squandering manager and puts him forth as an example for his disciples. That's a little difficult for us to get our heads around. Another is that it's not quite clear exactly what the manager is doing to extract himself from the situation that he's gotten himself into. So it can be a somewhat confusing parable. Let me outline it for you and then tell you a few things about it so you can appreciate the story as we have just heard it read. First, you'll see that Jesus' description of the circumstances of the story is found there in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 and 4, You see the manager, this shrewd but dishonest, squandering manager, thinking to himself how he's going to get out of the mess. And then in verses 5 through 7, you have described what he actually does. 
In verse 8, Jesus shows you what the master says about the manager. And Jesus himself makes application of the master's comments and the master's actions as he's speaking there to the disciples. And then in verses 9 through 13, Jesus makes a series of further applications to his disciples, culminating in this very familiar statement in verse 13 that no one can serve two masters, which is really the key to the whole thing. No matter what difficulties we may have understanding the parable itself and what's going on above, by the time we get to verse 13, Jesus makes clear what his point is at least. That you cannot serve two masters. But if you look through and you kind of count up all of the different applications that Jesus makes in this story, there are a number of them. Now it's important to note as we look at the story who the audience is. Jesus is clearly speaking to his disciples. That is very clear in verse 1. Now he was also saying to the disciples... Well, there we have it. So Jesus is speaking to his own followers. He's speaking to those whom he is equipping to eventually lead the church and minister to his people. His purpose, then, is to instruct his disciples. But as we've seen so often throughout the Gospel of Luke, his disciples aren't the only ones who are listening And so when you come down to the end of this account and you move into the passage we'll be looking at next week in verse 14, we read this. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So the Pharisees are listening in as Jesus is speaking to the disciples. You think Jesus knew that? He's speaking to his disciples, he's teaching and instructing his disciples, but he's also saying something to the Pharisees. It seems that they did not give Jesus a very good review. They scoffed at Jesus when he told this story. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but he's also got the Pharisees in his sights, because as Luke tells us in verse 14, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And so Jesus deliberately tells this story in order to address one of the key sin problems with the Pharisees. But as we take note of the Pharisees, let's not forget what we just said a moment ago. Jesus also has something he's saying directly to the disciples. He's addressing them. He's instructing them. So whatever is going on here in regard to the Pharisees, we don't want to lose sight that there is also a need for Jesus' own followers to pay attention to this. We cannot sit back and say, well, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, so we can you know, kind of listen in and then look at the Pharisees from on high as those dirty sinners we know them to be. And just say, go get him, Jesus. Jesus is speaking to us too. We could all feel very smug and condescending toward these Jewish leaders who lived 2,000 years ago. It's very easy to do as we're reading through the Gospels. 
But Jesus has us, us in his sights as well. As he speaks to the disciples, he's addressing us because we are his disciples if we are in Christ. He wants you and I to understand the lesson of this story. Now, this fact that he's addressing his disciples and indirectly addressing the Pharisees explains something of the nature of this story. Jesus is deliberately tweaking the Pharisees' noses by making a sinful man the hero of the story. That never sits well with the Pharisees. Here's one of the important things we need to understand. Jesus' point is not to praise dishonesty. That should be obvious. But it's one of the things that makes people uncomfortable with this parable. I was listening recently to an interview with an actor who had played a lot of roles in which he portrayed pretty evil people. And he was saying that there are a surprising number of people who cannot dissociate the actor from the role that he plays. And he recounted experiences in which he'd meet someone who would refuse to shake his hand (laughs) because they thought he really was like that guy he portrayed in a movie. And of course... He's an actor. He's portraying a a character. That's not him. He doesn't approve of the character. He's simply playing pretend. Likewise, when Jesus tells a story like this, he's making a point. He's not necessarily approving of a particular behavior. And here his point is to show that When it comes to the way that people use their money, sometimes worldly people are shrewder than people who profess to be God's people. Now here's the background to the story. You have a man who is in charge of a rich man's estate. He's described as a manager or some translations a steward, same thing. His job is to take care of money and resources that do not belong to him but which belonged to his master. But early in the story, the master becomes aware that this manager is, in fact, mismanaging his wealth. He's squandering it, perhaps even misappropriating funds. Now, the master, as you might expect, immediately fires the manager, calls him into the boardroom, sits there with his Donald Trump hair and tie, and says you're fired. But he's not simply fired. The rich man also tells him, you're no longer going to be my manager, but before you go, the last thing you're going to do is settle the accounts, and you're going to show me how much you've lost. You're going to show me the condition that I'm in financially. Give an accounting, verse 2 says of your management. Not so that we can see whether you've really done anything wrong. Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. That's a done deal. But before you go, tell me what you did. Now the manager at this point is afraid of several things. He's Afraid, I'm sure, that he's going to be prosecuted. He's afraid of what's coming next. 
being hauled into court. He's also afraid because he's made a lot of enemies in the village, clearly made a lot of money off of what he has been doing in terms of managing the master's funds, and he's probably not very popular in his own community. He wouldn't be welcomed into many homes for a meal, and he's thinking of himself. This is what he talks about. I've got to do something so that when I'm removed from management, verse 4, people will welcome me into their homes. Apparently, that wouldn't have happened just because he was now in some need. People wouldn't have come and said, hey, you know, he's such a great guy. It's really, it's really a shame this is happening to him. Let's help him out. He has to bribe people to do something for him after he no longer has a job. So he's got to come up with a plan to protect himself. So he calls in everyone who owes money to his master, and he allows them to pay off their debt at a reduced rate. Now, whether he does this by charging them usury or interest, or whether he does this in some other way, we're not told, but somehow he gives them a good deal in settling the debts they owe to his master. And when he settles the accounts with his master, the master looks at the bottom line, having feared the worst... And he's pleasantly surprised. It's not as bad as he thought. The manager had acted shrewdly. Now again, we want to ask a lot of questions about this. Because I'm reading through this and I don't understand how this works financially. But that's not the point. Jesus' point is to show that even worldly people know how to employ their money and their energy in order to secure their own interests. Now he wants to do two things here. In the telling of this story, he's saying this shrewd manager understood the consequences that he was about to face. He understood what his interests were, and he knew how to use his resources in order to foster his best interests. But in saying that, he's doing two things, one in regard to the Pharisee and one in regard to the disciples. He's saying to the Pharisees, you don't understand how to use wealth in the right way. You claim to be people who are concerned with eternal interests, but you don't use your money in such a way that says you care about eternal interests. The way you use your money says you care about yourselves. And he's saying to his disciples, don't be like them. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be people who lose sight of the eternal. And don't use your resources like there is not an eternal accounting on the way. When it comes to things that really matter, we need to be as shrewd as the pagans. But that will manifest it, manifest itself, in a different way. Our shrewdness won't look like the shrewdness of the world because we have different concerns. Not enriching ourselves, but storing up treasure in heaven. And so Jesus wants, us, wants to show us that The shrewdness of a pagan in securing his own interest 
by means of money is one thing. And then he asks his disciples to ponder this question. Does my use of money, does my attitude toward money, toward wealth, toward resources, comport with what I claim to be my priority? With what I claim to be the most important thing to me? The pagan is very clear. Most important thing to him is him. And the way he uses his money is going to demonstrate that. But the believer is different. We say, no, most important thing to me, the glory of God. Most important thing to me is to magnify his name. Most important thing to me is to make the gospel known. Most important thing to me is the expansion of the kingdom. Does the way we use our money fit with the words that come out of our mouths? Or does my use of wealth and my attitude toward it suggest that there's a disconnect between my mouth and my wallet? That's what Jesus wants his disciples to be thinking about, and he gives us a number of lessons here in this passage. Let me just focus on a few of them first. Jesus wants us to look at our use of money in light of eternal interest, as we've just said. You see that there in verse 9. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, Jesus is not saying that wealth is unrighteous. He's just making a distinction here between spiritual things and material things. And so the way that we use our money and our wealth ought to be in harmony with what we say about our concern for eternal things And for the kingdom, if we do belong to the Father, if we are his children, then we understand that whatever wealth we possess is from his hand and to be used for his glory. And if that is the way we live our life, that is evidence that we have a place in what Jesus refers to as the eternal dwelling. But Jesus also wants us to understand that our use of money may be in the vast scheme of what God is doing in the universe and throughout history. Our personal use of money may be a small thing, but it is not a trivial thing. There may be more important things in life than the way we use our money, but the way we use our money is important. And it's something that we need to give due consideration to. Another thing Jesus wants us to see, and you see this in verse 13. Jesus wants us to understand that our attitude toward money and how we use our money reveals the reality of who we worship. I wonder if you've made that connection before. The connection between your money and worship. No servant can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. There is a word for worship, which can also be and is also translated as service. You see this if you look at various translations of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me just turn there for a quick second rather than paraphrase it for you. We've been looking at this on Thursday mornings in our study of Romans. Romans chapter 12 begins the second part of the epistle. It begins... The section of Romans, which deals with application, first 11 chapters are doctrine, and then we come to chapter 12, and Paul moves to application of the doctrine that he's just explained. And in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, uh, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Note that phrase at the end of verse 1. Your spiritual service of worship. Worship and service is really translating the same term, a single term. Service is worship, and worship is service. It's the word from where we, it's it's that, that term from which we get the word liturgy. We are serving God in our worship. And so when Jesus talks about serving two masters, and he concludes by contrasting God and wealth, He's talking about worship. Do I worship God or do I worship my money? This is the big point that Jesus is pressing home. This is the umbrella under which he says everything else. That we are to be wholly devoted to the Lord. He wants to make sure that even when it comes to the way his disciples use money, that they reflect wholehearted devotion to God. And he also wants to protect them from, as he calls it, the leaven of the Pharisees, which in this case is the love of money. So let's look at a few things here. Look at what he says in verse 9. Let's just go back to this. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of wealth of the unrighteous, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, your use of money in this life ought to have eternal interests in view. The way you use money ought to be an indicator of what you believe about eternal life, about what you believe about the accounting which is to come at the final judgment. Jesus clearly has the Pharisees in his sights at this point. We're told in verse 14 that they were lovers of money. Jesus is warning his disciples against this. The Pharisees, 
You see, used people to gain things and serve themselves. And Jesus is saying his disciples to his disciples, don't use money that way. Use things, rather, to serve people and to glorify God. Use things to serve people and to glorify God. Don't use people to get things and glorify yourself. That's what the Pharisees would do. They claimed to be spiritual and heavenly minded, and this is a rebuke to them because they really weren't. And it was seen in the way they lived and in the decisions that they made financially. So Jesus is saying to his disciples and to you and me, instead of using people to line your pockets, use your money for kingdom purposes in order to secure eternal wealth. Let your use of money show where your heart is. So... Our money and how we use it is an indicator of what our heart is like. It tells us what we value. If you look at verse 10, Jesus makes another point that your use of money might be a small matter, but it's not a trivial matter. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. We've already said our attitude toward money and our use of money is an indication of the state of our heart. If that's the case, the implication is that money is not a trivial thing. You'll remember what Jesus says elsewhere. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If you're like the Pharisees and you use things or you use people to gain for yourself, it shows where your heart really is no matter what claims come out of your mouth. So Jesus is teaching the importance of faithfulness in little things. Things that we may think are trivial but really are not. I love what J.C. Ryle says. He guards us against supposing that such conduct about money as that of the unjust steward, ought ever to be considered a light and trifling thing among Christians. He would have us know that little things are the best test of character and that unfaithfulness about little things is the symptom of a bad state of heart. So what does your use of money say about you? Does your use of money say, for instance, that you think that money is actually yours? That you think that it's to be used for your happiness in any way you please? Or does your use of money say that you understand you are a steward? You're a manager. Every dime you have has been given to you from God. It's his, not yours. God has entrusted you with your resources to use for his glory. And for the good of others. Do you understand that we will give an account of how we use our money? Or have we lost sight of eternal things as evidenced by the way that we use our money. Your use of money may be a small thing, relatively speaking, but it is not trivial. It is an indication 
of what our heart is like. And then in verse 13, once again, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Our attitude toward money shows who we worship. Jesus uses the term wealth here. Obviously, that includes money, but the application is broader. It can refer to your stomach your ease, your pastimes, your sleep, your time, your worldly honors, your status, your influence, the praise of men, pleasure. Notice that Jesus does not say we should not serve both God and mammon. He says we cannot. It is an impossibility. Why is that? Well, one reason, of course, is God has said, you shall have no other gods before me. God has never, ever been content to share his glory. He will not share his glory with another. Whether it be Moloch and Baal or your bank account. You are always going to love and worship and serve something or someone supremely. And there will be no one who can vie with that supreme treasure. And Jesus is saying, ask yourself, examine yourself, where is your treasure? Where is your spiritual vision focused? Who is your master? Who do you care about the most? Who do you love the most? Who do you treasure the most? It has to be... God. If you're going to call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is only one answer. And he turns to the Pharisees and then he says to his disciples, these guys, they say they love God, but what they really love is money. And the way you know that is simply by watching what they do with it. Don't be like that. Love God more than your stuff. Again, J.C. Ryle has a searching series of questions that he asks about this parable. This is what he says. The parable, in this point of view, is deeply instructive. It may well raise within us great searchings of hearts. The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity The zeal and tenacity of men in business, compassing sea and land to get earthly treasures, may well reprove the slackness and indolence of believers about treasures in heaven. The words of our Lord are indeed weighty and solemn. The children of this world are, in their generation, wiser than the children of light. May these words sink into our hearts, and bear fruit in our lives. See, Jesus is talking to the disciples about living in such a way that demonstrates that we are wholly devoted to the Lord, that we treasure him above everything else. And as an example, he is using this ungodly man, a stand-in for the world at large, to say, look at how hard the world goes after its money. 
Should we be ashamed that we don't go equally hard after God? The big picture is clear. It's that we are to give the whole of ourselves in devotion to the Lord and use our material resources and as, as an index to that, as a, a witness to that, an evidence of that. You know, football coaches often speak, especially after they've won, about their, how their team left it all on the field. Right? And what they mean by that is that their players gave everything they had. They couldn't have given another ounce of effort, completely spent. Whatever they had to offer in that game, they have displayed it, they put it out on the field. That's how we ought to view the Christian life. Is that what we're doing? Are we leaving it all on the field? We ought to be so focused on eternal interests and eternal things that we deploy all that we have and all that we are in the interests of the kingdom. I'm not there yet. Confession, as if you didn't know. But there's the goal. That's the direction. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to in this passage. That's what he desires from me. That's what he desires from you. That's what he desires from our church. Father, bring it to pass because we can't do it. Father, your spirit indwells your people. So we understand We know what it is you did for us. You gave your only son, Father. You gave the greatest gift. Your son, Jesus Christ, sacrificed everything for us. Talk about leaving everything on the field. Father, then by the grace of your spirit, you drew us to your son. And you made us disciples of Jesus. And you told us, Father, when that happened, to count the cost. Well, this is the cost. May we live our lives, Father, wholly devoted to you. Holding nothing to ourselves as if we owned anything. Help us to recognize, Father, that all that we have, all that we are, is yours. From the finances in our portfolio to the blood running through our veins, it is yours. And may we not try, Father, the impossible. May we not try to have divided devotion. But may we worship you and you alone. And no other. Because of Jesus, Father, bring it to pass, we ask. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.